If you've been with us during the summer, we've been looking at a number of questions that Jesus asked of the over 300 that are recorded in the scriptures. Um, they speak to us. They, they teach us about ourselves and uh, about, about our Lord as well. Uh, this is the last week we'll be looking at the questions of Jesus, at least for now. We'll be uh, moving on uh, to, into our, our fall series uh, beginning in, in two weeks. Uh, we're going to resume our study in the book of Romans, picking up in Romans chapter 8. I uh, do want to encourage everyone, as uh, we did as we began this series, is while we're in the book of Romans, uh, we encourage you to, to read it uh, through. Uh, we've encouraged the congregation to read through the entire letter um, once a month uh, for, uh, for each month that we are in that book. And that would be coming out to about four chapters per week, so most people can find that time. Uh, and the reason being is the more we saturate it, the more we understand the way that God has been at work within our lives. Now, we're starting in two weeks, not just because next week is Labor Day, but for at least the course of the fall, we're going to uh, we'll do something a little different. I'll call it an experiment. Um, as we come the first week of each month, we're going to be resuming our celebration of the Lord's Supper. And we're going to move to the services will be a little bit different the first week as we're going to be table-centered. And so each week that we come, we'll do a meditation in preparation for the table, uh, but not the full sermon as a regular sermon series. And so we'll begin next week um, with a, a preparation for the table to come and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Then we'll, for the rest of September, we'll be in Romans, Romans 8. Uh, and then first week of, of October, then we'll be at the table again, and then we'll pick up again in Romans, and you get the pattern. And then as soon as you get used to that, and it's Christmas, and then we have a whole new set of rules. So, um, but nevertheless... Um, that's what we're going to try this fall um, and see if, how that works for us as a, as a congregation um, as we worship, as we hear God's word and study God's word together. So, but this morning, our focus is uh, on the, the last of the questions that we will consider this summer in the context of a very familiar study, a uh, familiar passage uh, for, for many who are Bible students, is uh, it's in Jesus' response to a request of two of his disciples and actually a response to two of his disciples' mother uh, who makes the request. So if you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. We'll begin our reading um, in verse 20, reading through verse 28. Uh, but the focus is on the question that is found in verse 22. Hear the word of our God. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And Jesus said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and to sit at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, 
you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of our God. Let's pray. Holy God, we we do come with thanksgiving this day, the freedom that you have granted us uh, to live and to worship and to gather all in your name. We come and we give thanks to you through our worship, standing in awe as we consider who you are and what you have done. And we rightly praise you. You've invited us to offer prayers to you, and in so doing, we honor you by recognizing that you are sovereign and we are not, and therefore we must trust and rest in what you do on our behalf and in us. But Lord, now let us worship still in mind, in heart, and even in strength as we give our minds to this word that you have given that we would seek to understand but to understand not only with our mind, but to receive what you would teach us that we might be shaped by this word. And in strength, as we come with a pre-conviction that what you teach us, we will do, so that we may live our lives in the way that you have prescribed and find the joy that comes with walking with you and living in accordance with your ways. So, Lord, bless us, but may we bless you by giving ourselves to this word during this time. We pray to the glory of your name and the joy of your people everywhere. In Christ, amen. Of the many marvelous stories of Muhammad Ali, I think my favorite may be from an interview that he did with Howard Cosell in March of 1967. Uh, Ali was preparing uh, for a fight. Uh, with a a ranked challenger named Zora Foley. And Ali was doing his normal poetic bravado, uh, both prior to the interview and in the midst of the interview and during the commercial breaks and any other time as he was prancing around, around viewing his poems and predicting the ultimate defeat of his opponent. Cassell asked him, uh, he said, you seem to be taking this challenger quite lightly. And Ali, in the middle of the sentence, continued on and talked about how he'll, he'll drop him like a rock. And, and Cosell said, you're being rather truculent, don't you think? And Ali responded, I don't know what truculent means, but if it's good, I'm it. And I like this story, one, because you can't help but like Muhammad Ali for just, you know, just being, just in his way, honest for being audacious. It's just... Uh, there's there's just something about uh, that that is attractive to to many people. And maybe it's because I'm just so used to it, and it's probably one of the the, the best expressions of our American can-do attitude. You know, we've been taught, we've even twisted Bible verses to say, I can do everything in Christ, and and we take the verse, which is a true statement, but it's just we take it out of the context. And I see many Christians who at times seem to act that way as well because, you know, we consider all of the commands that God has given to us. And he says, be holy as I am holy. And then you talk with sometimes with Christians, and maybe this is one of the reasons that the people who are unbelievers are quite skeptical. And can you really do all that? So I can do it. 
it's just part of our culture. And I see that same kind of under-informed confidence marking the two disciples here, James and John, who were, who were brothers, as they, they come with their mother to Jesus to ask this incredible um, request, this, this unbridled ambition that when Jesus comes into his kingdom that one would be at his right and the other would be at the left. In other words, they would be co-reigning, maybe not, not equal with Jesus, but they would be the the supreme uh, leaders underneath uh, the, the supreme leader. And Jesus, his response is, is understandable. It's also profound. First, he says to the mother, and I, I don't know how he kept a straight face. I mean, my response would be, seriously, you bring mommy? Uh, that's, you know, and then you think you're strong enough to, to leave? He, he leaves all that apart. And he says, matter-of-factly, first, you don't know what you're asking, which is certainly true, because they just assumed that Jesus was going to storm Jerusalem, take the throne, appoint his kingdom, and appoint his his, um, co-regents. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking, because when he came into his kingdom, it was because he was on the cross and dying. And to be on his right... And to be on his left would mean that you would be on the crosses next to him. Those places weren't for these two men. They were reserved for two thieves. One of whom mocked Jesus. The other of whom demonstrates to us all that we find our hope and salvation by God's grace through faith in Christ. Because when the one said to the, one, uh, to the other, as the, the mocking one spoke and the, the uh, believing one said, this man has done nothing. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. He had done nothing to redeem himself. He had not been baptized. He had done nothing good. All he had done is believe that Jesus is the perfect spotless lamb who was being crucified in the place of others. And by believing that, he receives the promise from Jesus, you'll be with me. You will receive your salvation. And, and the disciples didn't understand. That's how the things work. Understand, we wouldn't have understood it either. Uh, and so Jesus says, first and foremost to them, you don't know what you're talking about. It's, you're, you're asking for something that you really don't want. You don't want to be nailed or hung on that cross. You don't want to have to suffer what I am going to suffer. And he follows that question up with a, with, with a statement up with a, a question that is both direct and metaphor at the same time. Can you drink the cup that I am going to have to drink? And their response is, we can. You have to appreciate their all-in commitment. They're thinking, whatever it takes, we're all in. We will follow. We will do. We can endure. Even though they had no idea, couldn't even imagine what was to unfold in the days and weeks to come. Jesus answers them. You assume somewhat chuckling. You will drink from my cup, but for me to grant, for you to sit on the right or the left, that's that's not for me to decide. The Father has assigned that. The question that Jesus asked, can you drink the cup? That he asked them, and he 
this recorded because all of us need to we ask that question as well. Can we drink his cup? So to be able to answer that question, we need, first of all, to have an idea of what, what is cup. What's he talking about? Because uh, there are some that would read this, and if they have read through the Gospels, particularly in the, the picture of the crucifixion, and they realize that while Jesus was on the cross and he was fed, although it was probably with a sponge-like thing, not from a cup, and so he drank you know, the vinegar and, uh, that was meant to, to mock him. And so they're thinking, what's he going to drink? What, what, what is he talking about? Well, what he's talking about here is metaphorical. And it's, it's the biblical language. Uh, the commentator, uh, Frederick Dale Bruner, um, tells us that what Jesus is speaking about here uh, is, he says this, the cup of which Jesus speaks is the biblical expression for destiny. It's the allotted share of joy or suffering, which is portion for men and for nations throughout the, the course of their lives. And so what Jesus is saying, can you share in my destiny? Can you do what I have to, can you endure what I have to do? And they didn't know what that was, and so their answer was yes. And Bruno goes on, and I think he rightly says that in this passage, and the way that Jesus asks the question and then answers the question, it tells them very clearly that in one sense they, they cannot drink the cup that Jesus has to drink, and in another sense that they can. And so this morning, what I want to do is just to, to look at what Jesus means, that those who follow him cannot drink the cup, but on the other hand, that we, we can drink the cup, and how both of those can be true, and understanding both of those is essential for us to have a healthy, vibrant, spiritual life. And so the first is why we can't drink the cup. And the way Jesus asked the question, can you drink the cup, knowing that they didn't know what was going on, the implication there is you can't. He's asking them, and they think they can, but he's asking them in a way that would beg a negative answer. No, I, I can't endure what it is that you are having to endure. But their response, rather, was we can, because they think that the whole essence of being right with God rests on our commitment, our strength, our ability, and our achievement. And they're committed to this, just like most of us are. But Jesus' question implies you can't drink the cup. And the reason that neither they nor we can drink the cup is because Jesus' cup, Jesus' call, Jesus' destiny was unique. He, who was both fully God and fully man, he had come to offer himself as a sacrifice in our place, in the place of these very disciples. He had been perfect in his life in order that he would be spotless and be able to be qualified to be the sacrifice. But he came in our place to do for us what we cannot do, to do what only he can do. And so when he's saying, can you drink this cup, it's impossible for us, no matter how committed we are, because even if we were willing, once we understood what was involved, we are not perfect. We are not pure. We are the very ones he came and had to endure the suffering and the crucifixion and death for. And so by the very nature of the cup that he had to drink, which is to die in, on the cross in our place, we can't do it. And since he has done it, there's no need to replicate it. Jesus has come to demonstrate the fullness of God's love for us by dying in our place. And it's such a beautiful picture that it's shown over and over again throughout classic literature and great movies. It's, you know, they call it the eucatastrophe, uh, where one would become the substitute for another. Those of you who are, are um, 
students of, of literature will recognize it from uh, Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. I won't try to ruin the plot for those of you who have not read the, uh, read the book or only know it was the best of times and it's the worst of times, and then after that, not quite sure how the plot goes. I won't ruin that for you. Uh, but I will tell you this, that throughout that, two, there are two primary characters that uh, are in the story. Uh, one is a man named Charles Dornay, and another is a man named Sidney Carton. We're told that they were almost identical in their appearance, even though they were not related. Both men fell in love with the, with the same woman, and both had proposed marriage to her. But the woman that they fell in love with chose Charles Dornay. And rather than respond in anger and in bitterness, as would be understandable, and, and most men would, Sidney Carton pledged to the woman that he loved uh, that for his own life he would be available and would seek only what was best for her and those that she loved the most. In other words, he was going to demonstrate too, true sacrificial love. He was going to give love even when he was not experiencing the love that he had hoped to receive. As the story unfolds later on, Charles Darnay is accused of crimes. He's arrested. He is convicted. And he is sentenced to the guillotine by the French authorities. Sidney Carton goes to him right before the execution to visit with his old rival. Not to mock him, not to gloat, not to let him know that he'd be more than happy to step in and fill in for uh, with his wife, who uh, as her second husband. But during the visit, he drugs Darnay, knocks him out, and has his friends sneak him out. And because he is a lookalike, he puts himself in the position of the convicted, soon-to-be-executed man. To die in his place. He did it to fulfill the vow that he had made before. He did it because of love, that somebody that he loved, and he wanted to love not only that person, but love whom they had loved. And it's a beautiful picture of just the fullness of love. It is a beautiful picture in Western literature of what Christ has done for us. He came, he became like us in every way in order that he might bump us out of the way, that he would die the sentence that we had pronounced upon us. That not only we could live free the life that God has designed for us, but we can live changed by such self-giving love. And so when Jesus says, can you drink the cup? His cup was unique. Only the promised Messiah could endure and achieve what was necessary in that destiny to offer himself as the perfect substitute for people who had rebelled, rejected God and God's love. And this is important for us to consider because sometimes you might hear in Christian circles, particularly evangelical circles, you know, you need to be the gospel, or you may be the only gospel someone sees. I understand what somebody might be saying there. It's well intended. But one of the things that we need to constantly remind ourselves is you and I will never be the gospel. 
Jesus and Jesus alone is the gospel. We cannot be the gospels. We are the beneficiaries. We are the recipients, the responders to the gospels. And then as we respond, we become those who are the, the messengers of the gospel. And so when Jesus says, can you drink this cup? The primary thing that when he is implying that we can't drink this cup is that we need to recognize the uniqueness of the person and the work and the accomplishment and the fate of Jesus Christ. And we respond to that and we live in light of that and we share that truth with others. It's not because we are good and we invite other people to be good. It's because we are not good, but there is one who is good and we have the privilege to introduce other people to him. That if they, like us, believe and rest in what Jesus alone could do, they too can experience freedom and live a life of freedom and destiny as God has designed it for them. We are not the gospel. We are declarers of the gospel. Since I've already brought it up, I'll, I'll touch on another one of the, of the issues that kind of relates to that. Not only are we not the gospel, but there's this idea that goes out there that's attributed to Francis of Assisi that when we proclaim the gospel, you know, proclaim the gospel and when necessary, use words. There's a couple of problems with that. First of all, no, no scholars have ever been able to find that in Francis of Assisi's works, so that's problematic. Can't say he never said it, but he never wrote it, at least on anything we have. And that's solved by some people by saying, okay, well, it wasn't Assisi, it was Augustine, because Augustine and Martin Luther seem to be the go-to guys for anything that seems to be kind of cool to say. And if you quote it, nobody's going to differ with you. But even a bigger problem than the fact that neither Francis of Assisi nor uh, 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 Aurelius Augustine ever said that phrase, it's just wrong. We live as beneficiaries of the gospel. The effect of the gospel in our lives might be evident to others, but people cannot come to a saving knowledge and a transforming knowledge of the love of God unless we tell them of what Jesus has done and what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we are neither the gospel nor can the gospel be truly understood in us, but we live in light of the gospel. The transformation might be evident to others, and then we give answer to people as they ask questions for the reason that we have hope. The answer to that is, despite all reason, God has loved a rebellious people and sent his own son to assume our nature and the punishment we deserved to conquer death, to set us free, and to declare us righteous as we simply believe. And so Jesus says, can you drink the cup? And the implication is, you, you can't drink the cup, and, and you don't even know what you're asking. And most of the time when we, we think that we're going to just live Christian lives by following in the way of Jesus, we don't know where that leads. We don't know what it entails. What we do know is what God has done in Jesus Christ. But Jesus didn't say you can't, even though there was an implication. In response to their self-confidence, Jesus says, not, well, you can. He says, you will drink from my cup. And so while there is a very real sense in which those who are in Christ, well, nobody can drink the cup of Christ because Jesus came for a unique purpose and accomplished something that was unique and it's been accomplished and doesn't need to be done again. 
Jesus is also telling us that those who are the followers of Christ will, in, in some senses, drink from his cup. And I think there's, there are two dimensions that he has in, in view here. One is a little more comfortable, and the other was a little, is a little, uh, little more uncomfortable for us. Uh, and we begin with the uncomfortable, because when Jesus is saying that, and he's looking at these two men, I have no doubt that he has in view uh, the, the destiny, the fate of all of the disciples, these two uh, in particular, James and John. Because of the 12 that were following him, one had committed suicide. So uh, after his resurrection of the 11 that were among the original 12, uh, 10 of those 11 would be martyred in their lives, including James, who we see here in this passage. Of the original disciples, the only one to not experience martyrdom is the Apostle John, at least so far as we have record or even in tradition. He lived a long life and died after, and sometime in his 90s, we are, are told. But even though he wasn't martyred, it wasn't for lack of trying. He was arrested on a number of times, a number of times. He was convicted and he was sentenced to death. At one of the times that he was sentenced to death, the means of death was to put him into a pot and boil him in oil. And so the day came... They put him into the pot of oil. They lit the fire. The fire went up. The oil began boiling. And as I heard one old preacher say, but that tough old turkey wouldn't cook. And the people stood there amazed. And so there were many attempts. Now, again, I think that it would be good news if I was told I'm going to live into my 90s and I'm going to bear great fruit. And, you know, and that part sounds great. But if I'm told that there's going to come a point in my time, even if I'm only told that somebody's going to boil you in, order, in oil at one time, I'm not particularly excited about that. And there were multiple things that John had to experience. And then essentially they got tired and they just banished him to a remote island at Potmos because there he couldn't cause any problems. And having nothing else to do, he wrote for us the book of Revelation. So um, Jesus no doubt had in mind these men who will follow him, all who follow him, are going to experience their own hardships, their own difficulty. And Jesus had told them, and he, he tells us through them, look, if you're going to follow me and you're going to do what I'm going to do, to follow me, it means to be engaged in mission. If you engage in mission, you're going to encounter people who are not receptive to what you're declaring nor your way of living because you're going to undermine people's way of living, people's views, people's righteousness. And we don't take kindly when people undermine or question our righteousness. And some people respond violently. But those who follow are going to go anyway because they have been transformed by love, having been transformed by love, out of love for Jesus and out of love for the people who we have an opportunity to minister to, whether they are in our own community or whether they are to the different parts of the world, we are willing to go because of the love that has purchased us, has been demonstrated and poured upon us, and because of a love for others whom Jesus loves as well. And in that, we may suffer different difficulties of various kinds. We'll be drinking from the cup of suffering. 
This is not an option. It's not for the super saints and only for the apostles. Everyone who is follower of Christ is called to follow in the path and be engaged in mission in some way to not only minister to those who are hungry for the faith, but at times to encounter and to love those who would hate you for the faith. And Jesus said, you know, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And so don't be surprised if at times you find that by trying to proclaim the gospel. And sometimes this is to the the pagans around us, and sometimes this is to those who claim to be Christians, and you say, but this is what the word says. And sometimes they're the meanest ones of all because they like their interpretation of not reading scripture better than the authority of God's word that we bring. This is an invitation that is uncomfortable for all of us. It's an expectation that Jesus has. If you follow him, you will experience certain difficulties. It is not an indication that you are being rejected and forsaken by God. It is actually a mark that you are following in the footsteps of Christ and that he is with you. Now, that's kind of a bummer in one sense, except for the promise that Jesus has made that he will never forsake you and that he will be with you. He will empower you. and He will bear fruit through you. Our part is simply to be willing to go even when we're uncomfortable. But along with that, when Jesus says, you will drink from the cup, he has not only in view the sufferings that we may endure by being faithful in mission, faithful followers of Christ. He has in view what he came to accomplish that once he died and rose again conquering death and retakes his rightful role as the king of the nations those who belong to him will also be the beneficiaries and we will not only drink from the cup of his suffering but those who trust in Christ's unique cup will drink from the cup of his glory. We are declared righteous. One day we will actually be what we've been declared. We will be uh, those who are with Christ in heaven. We will be uh, among those giving praise to God as Christ is reigning from shore to shore. And so while we will drink from the cup of his suffering, we also have the promise we will drink from the cup of his glory. And I hope this is an encouragement to all of us this morning because the the reality is that Jesus did say, he does make this command and we we have the tendency to ignore it or belittle it or or minimize it, I mean, which is to be holy as, as God is holy. And as he gave the great commission, he says, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. That means if we're going to be followers of Christ, we're called to obey everything that is commanded. And so this question should be asked to ourselves and in general. Can we do it? Can you drink the cup that Jesus has prepared for you? Can you be holy as holy as God? Can you do everything? Can you obey everything that Jesus has commanded you to do? And the reality is there are some Christians who would say, just like James and John, we can And I'd have no doubt that they mean it, but they don't know what they're talking about. 
There are some of us, as early in our Christian lives, we are around a lot of people who say, we can, and so we might say, we can, but we're thinking, not a chance in the world. And then one of the marks of maturity in Christ is the recognition is that while we may see and been able to do a number of great things, I keep doing what I don't want to do, and I don't do all the things that I want to do, and I just, there's just no way that I'm going to do everything that I'm commanded to do. And when we get to this point, rather than despair, we remember what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done. That he came because we can't. We are able to because he is with us and he is in us. And that everything that God requires, he gives. And so when we hear this question, can you drink the cup? We need to remember the answer is no, but Jesus drank it for us. And by believing, it is credited as, as if we had. And if we believe that, then yes, in following him, we will drink the cup, both the cup of suffering, but ultimately the cup of glorious joy. Because it is for you, and it is given to you to drink, to remember, and to believe. Father, we pray with thanksgiving for this word and this reminder. I pray that you would enable us to recognize both our, our weakness and your strength. May we acknowledge our weakness and in our weakness see your strength at work in us and through us to the glory of your name and the joy for all who love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand. Lift your voices in thanksgiving to our God for giving us his Son.